0: I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Betraying Rojava. Our one song today is Kine M by Sylvan Perer, a Kurdish poet, writer, singer, and musician. Perer fled Turkey in 1976 due to the political tones of his music and lived in exile for most of his life. Kine M means, Who are we? In the middle of complexity, there's also simplicity. Sometimes what is good and what is evil is evident. Today's interview delves into the Turkish invasion into autonomously governed areas of northeastern Syria and the history of the Kurdish resistance in this region. On October 6th, the Trump administration announced it was withdrawing U.S. troops from northern Syria, essentially giving Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan a green light to invade Kurdish autonomously governed regions. The displacement and death tolls are rising. This is a major shift in U.S. foreign policy. Kurdish fighters have been partners with the U.S. and have been hugely effective in helping overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein, battling al-Qaeda in Iraq, and ultimately pushing the Islamic State out of northern Iraq and Syria. Days after Trump allowed a Turkish invasion of northern Syria aimed at routing the U.S.'s Kurdish allies, the White House is now calling for a ceasefire and imposing economic sanctions. But our guest David Romano says this is intentionally ineffectual.
1: This Turkish invasion could be stopped now mm-hmm. if the U.S. and European states would institute real sanctions. The sanctions that the United States just announced today are nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Uh, they're, they're a joke to make it look like we're we're responding and doing something. They decide they had originally talked of sanctioning Erdogan and all his ministers. They took Erdogan off the list, and now they're just sanctioning like three cabinet ministers and three ministries, and and. Upping the tariffs on steel back to what they were last May, and and, and saying that they uh, want to export more military hardware. Mm-hmm. That for the long term, those kinds of sanctions might be important. But for a short term tool to influence Turkey's invasion right now, this week as it's destroying everything over there, that's not the way to go. That they're extremely mild. <laughs>
0: David Romano is Thomas G. Strong Professor of Middle East Politics at Missouri State University. He's the author of the Kurdish Nationalist Movement, published by Cambridge University in 2006. He spent several years living in and conducting research in Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. We begin with the basics and ask David Romano to situate the Kurds in history, geography, and as an ethnicity. And now, betraying Rojava on Interchange on WFH. <laughs>
1: Kurds are an ethnicity uh, if we uh, define an ethnicity as uh, something generally based on language uh, the kurds uh, have a, a kurdish language divided into different dialects it's related to persian but different so it's in it's in the Indo-Aryan language group uh, along with Persian so that's different from Turkish which is in the Altaic language group it's different from Arabic and Hebrew which are in the Semitic language group and more importantly they have a a shared sense of identity going back uh, uh, centuries uh, Saladin who retook uh, Jerusalem from the Crusaders was a Kurd uh, but that was in an era before nationalism so his his kurdish ethnicity was more a private matter and he was a a muslim general back then mm. but but now we we've entered the modern era where turkish persian arab nation states have come into being uh, but no kurdish state the the kurds found themselves in their homeland of Kurdistan, which is this mountainous region where the modern borders of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria intersect. They found themselves as a minority in Arab states, the Turkish state, and um, a, a Persian state which became Iran. And uh, they've been the most significant ethnic minority in all of these states uh, with the exception of Iran. They're the second biggest ethnic mi- minority in Iran. Uh, the Azeris are the, the, the biggest uh, minority after the, the Persian majority there. Mm.
0: You said a magic word there, a word in in which we begin to see our troubles here, right? Nationalism, these nationalist uh, perspectives, borders in particular become difficult here. Um, You know, how how is it that nationalism became an issue?
1: Well, the the European ideology of nationalism, if you will, since the French Revolution eventually uh, spread to the whole rest of the world, now, unlike some of my ac- academic colleagues, I don't necessarily see nationalism as a, as a sin, as an evil. It can be, and it certainly has been <laughs> in different uh, periods of, of our history. But uh, it, it's really about uh, self-determination for your ethnic group. Mm. Um, now, it didn't it didn't need to be a conflict in every place. Like, I mean, we have countries like Switzerland, which has no problem recognizing three principal groups there, the, the German speakers, the French speakers, and the Italian ones, and they're all together within a, a Swiss state. So if you, you will, you have three nations uh, within one state, and there's also a, a civic national identity of Swiss, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not how it turned out in these Middle Eastern states. You had uh, Arab nationalists in Syria and Iraq, Turkish nationalists in Turkey, and Persian nationalists in Iran, all trying to create a kind of mono-national identity. Everyone had to assimilate to the their dominant uh, identity group and there was no room left for alternate identities, including the Kurdish one. And that's where we run into problems, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is betraying Rojava and focuses on both the history of the Kurds in the Middle East and the recent U.S. betrayal of the Kurds in northeastern Syria by allowing Turkey to invade the region on October 9th. Our guest is David Romano, author of *The Kurdish Nationalist Movement* and professor of political science at Missouri State University. I always think of uh, sort of the Cuban Revolution of of Marti and before as being an attempt to to create a Cuban. Where there was no Cuban per se, there were you know a bunch of formerly uh, you know people from all over the world brought there by slavery, uh, as well as people born there. So an attempt to create a nation. There in Cuba is, you know, an, an attempt to frame an identity that's institutional, national, etc., that says this is what Cuba is. And is this the the same thing that's going on generally in these other nation states or states where they're trying to create a particular singular identity, uh, but it's exclusionary versus perhaps inclusionary?
1: Yes and no. Um, people in the new world have a bit of trouble understanding uh, nationalism and national identity in older countries. So uh, Americans treat a nation and a state as a synonym uh, Mm. when most of the world does not. I I come from Canada, for instance. In Canada, there's two or three founding nations, uh, the the French speakers, the English speakers, and the First Nations, the indigenous, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, a Canadian is much less likely to treat nation and state as, as a synonym. Uh, in, in countries like Cuba or the United States or New Zealand, Australia, the idea was wherever you come from, you're going to be part of this new nation. But in older places, I- including the Middle East and, and continental Europe and so forth, you have multiple nations who find themselves through the accidents of war because pretty much all the states borders were founded through warfare Mm -hmm. uh, you find multiple nations who all find themselves within one state and so the french model if you will was to assimilate all these forcibly even Uh, into one French nation. Or in the Italian case, uh, there's a famous quote, I think, attributed to Garibaldi, who says, after uniting all the city-states of Italy, he says, uh, we've created Italy, now we must create Italians. Mm. Because they had (laughs) (laughs) disparate languages and so forth. But when you're looking at the Kurds, you're looking at a group that's been there for for millennia. We have records all the way going back to Alexander the Great's uh, campaigns against the Persians. They were facing a and their retreat um, uh, by uh, groups that they called the Kulbi uh, in the mountains of what's today Kurdistan. So it goes back a long way. Mm. So if you suddenly get new uh, nationalist ideologues in these countries, say Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, who's trying to form a new Turkish nation state out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, th- there's going to be pushback uh, when he adopts uh, these, these European ideas about uh, nation-state, and decides to go with just one identity group, one ethnic group, which is the Turkish one. And everyone else has to become Turkish. And he comes up with slogans like, happy is who he who calls himself a Turk. (laughs) Well, not everyone calls themselves a Turk or Mm -hmm. feels attracted by that. Like, I mean, Kurds were united with Turks in World War I. They were all members of the Ottoman Empire as Muslims. But suddenly you abolish the sultanate and the caliphate after that war, if you're Kemal Ataturk, and you declare a new Turkish nation state. That that alienates first Kurdish elites who have also imbued uh, the ideology of nationalism and, and then eventually rank-and-file Kurds who don't feel like they're equal Turks and are forbidden from using Kurdish in public discourse and so forth. And they're like, well, it's my mother tongue. Of Mm -hmm. course I'm attached to it. (laughs) You know, what are you doing?
0: (laughs) Right, right. That's, uh, so it, obviously the, the problems run deep then in that sense. There's an identity that's formed already. There's an identity uh, ba- basically as you say within language and once the um, uh, war politics, um, uh, this other idea of national identity happens, it becomes uh, uh, an attempt to repress or oppress a people and make them into something else.
1: Right. And, and the, the Kurdish minority in all of these countries gets, uh Characterized as a threat, as mm-hmm. a threat to the central government, to the, uh, as something to, that uh, foreign powers are going to go in to try to manipulate to weaken the the Turkish or Arab or, or Persian states. And instead of looking at their grievances as perhaps legitimate, uh, they're, they're seen as tools and proxies of foreign powers. Uh, and so this is especially true in Turkey, but not only in Turkey by any means. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we we get a a negative uh, dynamic uh, starting to unfold uh, as early as World War One, right? Mm. So uh,
0: so they become the the scapegoated other in in this particular area.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and it also gives these states a, a great excuse. I, I've got a book I co-edited with uh, Mehmed Gürses in 2014 on the Kurds, and the main argument of the book is not only are the Kurds attacked as others, but the, the threat that they're su- Supposedly posing to national security is a great excuse for authoritarianism in general to Mm. repress dissidents who aren't even Kurdish. Because once you, once you give yourself the powers to suppress freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and so forth, you don't just use it against the Kurds. You use it against all your political opponents if you're the government. And, and you're, you're able to form what's called in Arabic a muhabarat state, a, a security services state. That uh, doesn't tolerate any dissent.
0: It's time for a break. We continue with Kine M by Shivan Peoel, Kurdish poet and musician. Kine M means, Who are we? And when we return, David Romano will talk about the generally secular nature of the Kurds. Stay with us on interchange.
2: Kurdistan, Jaro Perishan,
0: Ketan
2: Khaway, Ketan Khaway, Ketan Khawa Zulmu Zori, Ketan Khawa Bindesti Raketan rakat yak char ansare khura karin le 280 zuje karin yak char na behaz sare khura karin le 200 sare zuje karin le vi ardi to ven hati chandin avard jiane Germ de Beisar de de Brusque, de Welcome back to Interchange
0: on WFHB. David Romano is our guest, recorded via Skype earlier today. He's the Thomas G. Strong Professor of Middle East Politics at Missouri State University and author of The Kurdish Nationalist Movement. In this segment, Romano talks about how the Kurds have responded against the oppression they faced by becoming more secular and inclusive. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Kurds in their place, in a sense, right? So you talked about already about um, uh, Persian Kurds and Turkish Kurds and Syrian Kurds and uh, was it uh, Iraqi Kurds as well. There are multiple uh, states, uh, or are they nations? You're going to have to correct me on that, too, sure.
1: obviously. Well, Go ahead. Well, I I wouldn't use the term Persian Kurd because those are two different ethnicities. I would say Iranian Kurd because the name of the state is Iran, and and they're a Kurd in that country. But Kurds don't always even like that. uh, uh label they they refer to the d- different parts of kurdistan so the part of kurdistan that's colonized by turkey in the kurdish nationalist perspective is north kurdistan mm. in syria it's rojava which means west kurdistan mm. in iran it's rojalat which means east kurdistan and in iraq it's uh bashur which means south kurdistan
0: mm. so there is a sense of kurdistan in in kurdish or with within the kurds idea of themselves they do have a boundary in a sense or a nationality within their own thinking is there is that such a thing I mean it's hard again for many of us to think outside these particular borderlands as having actual meaning or meaning that makes a difference it makes a difference obviously in power and and in military and and things of that nature but uh so so the the Kurdish people then do understand themselves as as an identity that has a uh, a national sense
1: Absolutely. They, they see themselves as a nation. This doesn't mean that all of them have an irredentist uh, project to create a pan Kurdish state that unites all the parts of Kurdistan and secedes the, each portion from the, the state that it's in currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, most of them, have all just called for autonomy within their states, more self determination. But they do see themselves, no matter which dialect uh, they'll speak, uh, as kin as a nation.
0: Hmm. So are they protected within these areas at all in terms of, again, uh, the nation that they are within, or are they within a state? If they're in uh, Iraq? Then are are they within the nation or state of Iraq? And then ha- uh, are um, served with underneath that umbrella, or mal-, mal served, I suppose, underneath that umbrella, or sometimes served well underneath that umbrella, but would just as soon um, be autonomous from that particular nation or state.
1: Well. In Iraq, up until 2003, they were a a subjugated uh, minority that uh, the Iraqi state uh, didn't recognize as a nation and and suppressed and Mm -hmm. even tried to commit genocide against Mm -hmm. uh, in in the 80s. But uh, with the new Iraqi constitution of 2005, it recognizes uh, the Kurds as a distinct nation within Iraq, along with the Turkoman, which are another minority group that, that speak a version of Turkish. And and and then other groups, uh, which are much smaller, it kind of lumps them into the other category. The Iraqi constitution is much more liberal, and instead of uh, declaring uh, an Arab state per se, uh, and only an Arab state, it, it leaves room for other identities. And, and they have autonomy hmm. within uh, today's Iraq, thanks to our removal of Saddam Hussein's regime. And their situation there is uh, by far the best of the different parts of Kurdistan. Hmm.
0: So that's that's uh that's one that I think people in the US would be would not necessarily understand, but it would be hard again to understand the differences the changes in these particular regions post uh, uh, uh, the wars that have uh, have been wa- waged there via the u s um, and tr- to try to understand a a better world order you 're suggesting then that the Iraqi Kurds um, have um, benefited from u s intervention
1: yes iraqi kurdistan's the the success story mm-hmm. from the Iraq war uh, it's night and day For my first time there was in 1994 right after the the Gulf War of 91 and uh, the situation was bad and, and I saw the remnants of villages that Saddam Hussein's regime had gassed in 1988 and uh, it, it was somber but now it's a it's a thriving area it still has problems of course but uh, Kurdish is uh, uh, an open identity there's schools teaching in Kurdish uh, people identify as Kurdish with Fearing repression from the state, and they have their own autonomous powers. is It's a, a success story, hmm. and the the Iraqi Kurds they're a bit upset about some events that happened two years ago there, but in general, they're they're quite grateful to America for uh, having removed uh, Saddam Hussein's regime, uh, a project they helped with, of course. Hmm. So, um,
0: can you explain or try to give us some sense of a like a? I know this is. I'm sure this is reductive, but in the sense that you uh you can think of what occurred um means or is in terms of its nation's hood in a sense right so we we like you just mentioned education and things of that nature, and you know so is is the kurdish um nation uh more liberal, uh conservative. I don't even know how to use these particular terms, these, these these particular English terms, perhaps, or or this particular Western European framework of how we view other groups and how they get together and are in communities. What how how best to describe the Kurds?
1: Well I, I think there are a few generalizations you can make about the Kurds in the different parts of Kurdistan. And and one is that they've proven Via all their political parties, to be uh, a lot more secular Mm. than the prevailing mood in the Middle East. So there's only a few very small Kurdish Islamist groups. Uh, Not all Kurds are Muslim. There's even Jewish Kurds in uh, in Israel now. After Iraq expelled them in the 1950s, Um, but because Kurdish is an ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have different religions within that ethnic group there's yazidi kurds there's other religions you may not have heard of like kakai and, and even zoroastrian mm. uh, kurds and so forth most are muslim though but they're they're secular mm-hmm. uh, by and large uh, the ones in syria and turkey are the most secular uh in terms of the political parties they've founded but also in iraq and iran and uh Another thing you could generalize about is that their their nationalism isn't anti-Western, like also seems to be the prevailing mood in the rest of the Middle East, with the exception of Israel. There's going to be complicated reasons for that, but in short, I guess I would say their nationalism developed in opposition to repressive Arab, Persian, Turkish states, rather than in opposition to the West, right? Mm. So, so, the Kurds are generally pro western and finally uh the Kurds in the modern era have proven uh, very uh tolerant and liberal towards other ethnic groups and minorities. And so forth, uh, and the logic they've given for this is that Kurdistan's always been a very diverse place with Christian communities and other groups. But more than that, they faced oppression from central governments who didn't accept their difference, and so they they say that they're not willing to turn around and oppress others for being different. So in Iraqi Kurdistan, which has autonomy, the Turkmen groups have schools in Turkish, no problem. The Arabs have schools in Arabic, and, and different. It's a been a shelter for christians fleeing violence in baghdad or mosul from the islamic state it's been a, a shelter for secularists fleeing problems elsewhere uh, it's been a, a haven for everyone and that's been true of syrian kurdistan the part that's currently under assault mm-hmm. by, Tur- by turkey that's been true of syrian kurdistan as well
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Betraying Rojava and focuses on both the history of the Kurds in the Middle East and the recent U.S. betrayal of the Kurds in northeastern Syria, by allowing Turkey to invade the region on October 9th. Our guest is David Romano, author of The Kurdish Nationalist Movement and professor of political science at Missouri State University. Well, let's turn turn to that area. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how to jump into it, and I do want to frame it in terms of what's uh, obviously happening right now. Um, But at the same time, uh, uh, maybe a little bit more background on this particular region. I think that, what is it, um, particularly you said earlier, it was Rojava, who, that region in particular seems to have captured the Western imagination or the Western idea of what could happen in this area in a a sort of um, liberal or democratic way or progressive way, or again, these are terms I... I, I'm not sure if I should apply but uh, let's let's characterize that region.
1: Well, you know the the Syrian Kurds uh, f- for the whole history of here, Syria were the quiescent, quiet part of Kurdistan. Uh, the terrain is much more flat. Mm-hmm. It's not conducive to guerrilla warfare against the central government and they were unhappy subjects of a a Syrian Arab Republic. That's the official name of Syria, right? The Syrian Arab Republic. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't leave room for Kurds, right? right. <laughs> Just in the title. Uh, and uh, in 1962, 100,000 of them were summarily um, stripped of their citizenship, declared to be interlopers, actually from Turkey. Mm. And without without citizenship, they couldn't go to school, they couldn't get married, they couldn't get jobs. And, and that that number has now grown to like 300,000. So they they had no love for the Assad regime, Baathist governments, and and, and Damascus in general. Uh, when the Syrian civil war broke out, however, in 2011, Assad withdrew his troops from that area in order to focus on threats closer to Damascus and along the coast. And, and that's when the Kurds began their experiment in autonomy. Now, it ended up being spearheaded by remnants of uh, the PKK, uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is the main opposition group in Turkey that's been fighting the Turkish government since 1984. Hmm. Uh, About 25% of the PKK's uh, um, militants were actually Syrian Kurds, whom the Assad regimes had encouraged over the years to join the PKK so that they could go to Turkey and make trouble there instead of in Syria. And it was used as a kind of um, leverage against Turkey mm-hmm. when Syria was mad at Turkey for like putting dams on the Euphrates River or other issues, they could use the PKK to, to pressure Turkey. So the PKK always had a, a a fairly large contingent of Syrian Kurds in it. So the Syrian civil war breaks out in 2011. and And these folks go back and they had started going back even before the Syrian civil war uh, as early as 2003, 2004. But after 2011, they start going back in large numbers and they form uh, a party there, the Democratic Union Party, the PYD, which has uh, women and male fighting units. Because perhaps another generalization you can make about most Kurdish groups, although not all, is that they've been very um, gender progressive um, and so they they engage in their autonomy there. They start uh, carving out their own autonomous fiefdom that's trying to stay out of the civil war and, and just run their affairs for the first time with a bit of freedom without the yoke mm-hmm. of the central government over them. But they're immediately put under threat by jihadi groups who also want to control that area, control all of Syria, overthrow Assad, and so forth. So uh, they end up... Uh, in, in fights with the jihadi groups, uh, which I'll go, I can go more into uh, as we continue discussing. But the, the, the enclave that they build without ever claiming that they're seceding from Syria. Saying that they're still part of Syria, they just want autonomy within Syria, uh, is one that's uh, very progressive for women's rights, for different groups. They they bring in uh, Yazidis, Christians, Arabs, Turkmen's into their party, so that it's very multi-ethnic, and they have they arm the other groups as well, as long as it's part of their political movement. And they, they established this experiment in a kind of democratic autonomy, as they call it, which is a kind of anarcho-socialism based on the ideas of uh, the American thinker Murray Bookchin, who died not long ago. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to act as if the state doesn't exist. They're not seceding. They're not forming their own state because they they kind of reject nationalism in, in this uh, new perspective. They just want to live their own lives with local autonomy uh, in their own way, almost in spite of the state. Now, So they're very liberal in all these terms, but they're not liberal in a political sense. Competing parties aren't allowed to uh, come in and they see them as a threat. As mm. a,
0: uh, so this is like a, a one party. Like, again, uh, I, I'm just struck by a, the Cuban idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. I think there are analogies there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they viewed other Kurdish, because Syrian Kurdish movement was always very fractured with like more political parties than I can remember mm-hmm. and, and uh, when the other parties who didn't have armed fighters like the PYD brought in from the PKK uh, they, they claimed uh, these other parties tried to um, uh, uh, stake out a role for themselves in, in the new administration that's where the, the PYD wasn't the, the most liberal or tolerant and said no we're running the show mm-hmm
0: it's time for another break when we come back we'll discover how the Kurds in Rojava attempted to put into practice the ideas of American social ecologist and anarchist philosopher Murray Bookchin stay with us for more with David Romano on Interchange (laughs) Welcome back to Interchange. In this segment we turn to Rojava, or Northeastern Syria, and the efforts of the Kurds to create an autonomous region that is very socially progressive and multi-ethnic. But they're not a state and so have always been vulnerable to state actors like Turkey and Syria. And we'll hear about Donald Trump's decision to betray the Kurds in support of Turkey's strongman Erdogan. One question that I had um, really had as much to do with the fact of instability in the region. Uh, instability makes for opportunities, right? Yeah. And this is a lot of what what's been going on and and the instability has uh kind of allowed for that particular region to to do as it's done one of the the issues that is now facing the region obviously with Turkey uh going full force um, against that particular area is is that um there's no protection there for that particular region
1: no they uh they don't have with the United States having betrayed them they they don't really have any uh, protector, and they're they're they're not a state. They don't have the power. They don't have an air force. Uh, right. They might be able to do okay for themselves with a no fly zone, but we don't seem even willing to to grant them that. They they uh, they they they can fight well uh, if they're not being bombed from the air continuously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's where with the American betrayal and pull-out, they've had to turn to Assad of all uh, people. Uh, to try to get some cover, uh, Assad would bring Russian cover, presumably, mm. uh, against uh, a very powerful NATO member, which is Turkey, uh, and uh, th- because they need some kind of cover. Mm. Otherwise, they're, they're, they've got a choice between a return to Assad's authoritarianism or genocide at the hands of the Turks and their jihadist proxy forces.
0: Mm. So here we're, we're into that space where we try to understand... Um, uh, what seems to be the return of uh, the genocidal impulse, the nationalist genocidal impulse to to erase one's uh, enemy or one's um, or the other that we talked about before is, is that's literally what's going on with with what Turkey's trying to do?
1: I would say effectively, that's what's going on now. now. The Turkey is going to claim that they don't have anything against Kurds per se. They're just against the PYD, which they equate completely with the PKK, saying there's no daylight between them, which I think might be a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they're going in just to move against the PYD, but that, that's not in effect what they're doing. Uh, we've already got somewhere between two and 300,000 displaced, uh, from this week in Afrin, another region of Syria that Turkey invaded. In 2018, in January, which was the another Kurdish run area just adjacent to where they're invading now. Uh, they created 300,000 uh, displaced in a population that wasn't much above that. They displaced most all the Kurds and, and installed. Uh, Islamist uh, Sunni Arabs in their place, in their looted homes and businesses, tore down Kurdish symbols, stopped Kurdish schools, uh, and replaced it with Turkish and Arab curriculum. And you know that that's genocide. That that's erasing a people from a place, right? Right.
0: Well, that's um, that's again one of the the things I'm trying to understand here. So, uh, is this uh, basically a particular regime that wants to do this? Uh, so, it's when, when, we're, when we're talking about Turkey and the Turkish people or the Turkish Kurds. I mean, um, there are other people in Turkey other than Kurds, obviously. Uh, so, are, are these general, uh, uh, I guess, nationalist uh, impulses uh, among all other? Uh, Turkish people, or is this a particular party that has moved to create this this particular uh, genocidal moment? Uh, does it is it a, a similar sort of right wing push that we've seen across across the globe?
1: Yes, I think the current government in Turkey, the AKP government under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is a far right government, and it's allied with another party, the MHP party, the National Movement Party, which is even more far right. Which I would just call straight-out fascist, mm. um, and, and this is why Turkey resumed its war against the Kurds in 2015. The the AKP party, which is a kind of Muslim nationalist right-wing party, uh, wasn't at the beginning at war with the Kurds. They talked about Islam as a kind of unifying thing that could bring Kurds, since most of them are Muslim, and, and Turks together, and they pursued uh, peace negotiations with the PKK and uh, made offers to the Kurds in Turkey, uh, legalized uh, Kurdish in a lot of venues and some television broadcasting, uh, made it easier to publish in Kurdish in Turkey and even allowed some municipalities to have Kurdish place names. All that ended as the AKP government started to face electoral problems in 2015. They, for the first time, they didn't get a majority government and and they blamed it on developments in Syria, actually, um, because uh, Turkey was all too happy to see jihadi groups, including ISIS, attack the Kurds in Syria because it saw them as linked to the PKK, which it had been fighting for a while, even though they were in peace talks with the PKK. Mm. <laughs> they were happy to see basically Kurdish autonomy in Syria squelched. They didn't want the demonstration effect for Kurds in Turkey. And and Kurds in Turkey didn't like seeing their kin in Syria getting steamrolled by jihadi groups and so they stopped voting in as large numbers for the AKP as they had been. And at the same time, you had a pro-Kurdish party in Turkey called the HDP. I don't know if I'm deploying too many acronyms. It's a
0: lot you. of acronyms on I mean, eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what uh, else you would do to, to distinguish yeah. them, but yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And this pro-Kurdish party made an alliance with leftists in, in Turkey, and um, and they were doing better and better. And their increasing electoral success, like 13% of the vote in 2015, basically denied the the ruling right-of-center party of Erdoğan, the akp a, a majority for the first time with the turkish elections mm. in 2015. so what Erdoğan did was uh, he instructed his prime minister to not form a government with any of the other parties so he could redo the elections and in the intervening time period before the electoral redo he relaunched the war against the kurds against the pkk
2: mm.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Betraying Rojava and focuses on both the history of the Kurds in the Middle East and the recent U.S. betrayal of the Kurds in northeastern Syria by allowing Turkey to invade the region on October 9th. Our guest is David Romano, author of The Kurdish Nationalist Movement and professor of political science at Missouri State University.
1: The uh, Syrian Kurds who used to get visas to Turkey and were invited to Ankara and Istanbul to hold discussions. These weren't always the bogeymen for, for a period. You know, it could have gone differently. But the electoral calculus of Erdogan was by relaunching the war with the Kurdish parties, he could uh, rally the nationalist vote around him. Uh, and it was very effective. When they redid the elections, uh, they, they got the majority again in cooperation with this far-right MHP party. And, and there's been a, a re- resumed war in Turkey against uh, Kurdish parties since then, which includes Kurds in and Syria. And, and so I think the the Turkish approach to Syria is really very much based on Turkish domestic electoral concerns of the ruling party. And it, it's, it's a war of choice uh, born out of domestic imperatives.
0: Hmm. Well, that's... Um that's uh, again I think understandable right that's not I'm not saying it's right or anything I'm saying that's a, right. that's a thing that you have said here that makes sense in terms of why um, parties in power make war um, and why they uh, single out particular groups uh, for vilification uh, to solidify their own power base so that that part's easy enough to understand uh, the difficulties continue to become just trying to understand the the global political, uh, scene, right? So the the presence of the U.S., the the, the Russia, uh, etc., and trying to understand even even within the, as you mentioned, the jihadi groups and how the Kurds were uh, probably the the the biggest uh, obstacle to the jihadi groups to ISIS in in the region as well. The the group most successful in fighting ISIS.
1: Absolutely, and. Well, the genius of the Assad regime when the civil war broke out is it focused all its efforts against the the liberal Arab uh, opponents uh, and, and the more secular Arab uh, dissidents that were fighting it, and it let the jihadi groups rise up the middle, even let jihadi's out of Syrian prisons, so that the um, the opposition in Syria would be characterized would become dominated by jihadi's. At which point, the rest of the world said, well if we let Assad fall, who's going to replace him? It's going to be some jihadis that are even worse. And that Mm. became this genius strategy of the Assad regime to stay in power by characterizing all their opponents as jihadis. So Assad wasn't really fighting the jihadis much for the first several years of the war. And Turkey didn't want to because, first of all, it's a kind of Muslim nationalist government. It has some affinity for these groups, although it's not as extreme as they are. Uh, but it thought it could use them as a proxy the same way Iran uses Shiite groups as proxies. And so the only one on the field willing to fight these guys in terms of the local actors in Syria were the Kurds. And in Iraq, it was a similar deal with the Iraqi army having fled and only the Kurds stopping the advance in the north there. Different Kurdish groups, but the same uh, result. And, and so the United States in Syria was left especially after a botched CIA program to work with Syrian Arab groups who are already compromised by jihadi recruits amongst their members that failed to the tune of a billion dollars wasted. And they tried to train them in Turkey and it, they just, Ended up turning weapons over to jihadist groups as soon as they crossed the border into Syria. So that completely failed. And so the only option left for the US if it wanted to fight ISIS, which it now did and had forgotten about removing Assad from power because it was afraid of what would come next. So the US had only one choice left and that was to go with the Syrian Kurds, which it did.
0: And, in do, and then in uh, the recent uh, Trump removal of troops, it's, it's taken away its, its bulwark against uh, that genocidal impulse.
1: Yes, it's taken away the gains against the Islamic State. And sleeper cells are already engaging in a rash of attacks on Kurdish forces at the same time as they're trying to defend themselves from a, a Turkish onslaught that was perfectly within the power of the United States to prevent or even stop now, but we're not doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, and, and what's really mind-boggling is that Turkey is using proxy Syrian rebel groups that are loaded with jihadis, to engage in this offensive, and they're committing war crimes. And some of these, according, according to reports, that like in the independent newspaper in the UK, are former ISIS people the, and and definitely former al-Qaeda and Syria people that Turkey has recruited into its Syrian Arab proxy forces and these are the ones they're sending now into the Kurdish parts of Syria who are apparently letting ISIS prisoners go and uh, Turkey's trying to claim that the PYD is uh, the, that the Kurds are letting the ISIS prisoners go and Trump uh, President Trump repeated that that claim by all accounts by the accounts of US officials that's nonsense Uh, What's happening is Turkey's going in there with Arab jihadis to ethnically cleanse the Kurds from the area, and they're letting ISIS escape. It's time for our final break. We'll turn to the
0: women of Rojava when Interchange returns on WFHB.
2: Şişar dara Ohohoho Kurdistan Fırot Van Tevney yara Ohohoho Bu ne mezhepdar Bu ne olperest Ohohoho Bu ne paşver Ruh Bir tesbih Ohohoho Ta kuduş İşte
0: Welcome back to Interchange. David Romano, author of the Kurdish Nationalist Movement, is our guest. In our final segment, we look at the way the Kurds are often in advance of the U.S. when it comes to equality, specifically between men and women. Is it fair to try to think about these things in those particular terms you 've characterized the Kurds in their particular um a way of living as being more uh secular progressive um, more uh, open to uh, plurality more open to uh women's uh, liberation a feminist perspective there as well a- a- as opposed to uh the isis or jihadi in the area that this is um existential in that space as well
1: yes it's a it's a, you know if if there ever was A a struggle between good and evil. I think in real life this would be as close as it comes Mm. Uh, and and yet we seem to have trouble deciding uh, what we're going to do on on, on this score because Turkey is such a powerful uh, economy and and state. Uh, I'm not saying we had to fight Turkey or even end our alliance with Turkey but on this famous uh, phone call a bit more than a week ago on uh, Sunday evening uh, between Trump and Erdogan, Trump apparently went off script, and he was supposed to warn Erdogan to stay north of the border, to not invade Syria, and, uh, and to say what it took to dissuade Erdogan from doing so. And Trump just said, "Oh well, you can have it. Didn't, oh, we'll pull out." Uh, hmm. By by all accounts, and and the, this is, you know, for the U.S. to now impose sanctions, and the sanctions we imposed uh, today are a slap on the wrist. They're not serious. Uh, uh, But even if we were to impose the heavy sanctions, that's still a a demonstration of the administration's failure because you could have kept Turkey as a trading partner and a member of NATO and all these things by just threatening them before they did it Mm -hmm. and not having to enact the threat because you could have dissuaded them. But by all accounts, Trump didn't really tried to do that. He didn't follow the script. He didn't understand the conversation he was entering with Turkey's president and he got rolled. Mm.
0: So um, the, the takeaway there is not that the U.S. per se got rolled, but Trump in particular, that there is no one in the room with Trump to say you can't do that or that there's no Pentagon position or DOD position or uh, foreign policy position that people would say, well, you know, he just can't say stuff like that. <laughs> like that's just my boggling.
1: Right. It, it, it seems to be a one man fiasco, mm. if you will. Uh, all his advisors, everyone around him, all the other Republicans, including Lindsey Graham and, and others, were saying, you you can't abandon these allies of ours. Uh, the, the U.S. position had been to be there on the border, try to mollify Turkey with joint patrols, got the Kurds to take down their fortifications on the border as a, a condition for continued U.S cover against Turkey. And, and and to tell Turkey that you know we're not letting them do any attacks across the border. That border's been totally quiet. And Turkey has a totally fortified border with Syria. If you've ever been there, it's this fortified fence with guard towers every hundred meters and a minefield like a squirrel couldn't get through. Mm. Turkey didn't have legitimate security concerns about an attack from the Kurds in Syria, but we pretended like they did to mollify them, and that was the policy. And we were helping them against the PKK inside. Turkey throughout. In fact, in 1998, uh, we captured the PKK leader in Kenya and turned him over to the Turks. Didn't get a lot of gratefulness for all that, one would think, uh, 20 years later. But but that was the policy. And instead of holding to that policy, Trump on his own, against the advice of everyone around him, like, I mean, in December, when he almost did the same thing in a phone call with Erdogan, uh, after announcing the pullout from Syria Trump lost his defense secretary Mathis, and he lost—he uh, got the resignation of his chief envoy for the coalition to fight ISIS, Brett McGurk. They—they they all resigned in disgust. They said, "You know, we can't function like this." Everyone around him was on message, saying, "You can't let the Turks invade here. It's going to undo everything." Yet he went with his gut, and this is the result. Hmm. This is
0: Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Betraying Rojava and focuses on both the history of the Kurds in the Middle East and the recent U.S. betrayal of the Kurds in northeastern Syria by allowing Turkey to invade the region on October 9th. Our guest is David Romano, author of The Kurdish Nationalist Movement and professor of political science at Missouri State University. Is this a, a Trump um, love of dictatorship with Erdogan uh, in the same way with Putin or Kim Jong-il?
1: or Yeah. Pretty, yeah. I, th- I think so. I'm speculating, For but sure. I, I think he he, he admires the, the macho strongman dictator. And, right. you know, he's not coming from a political background. He's coming from a business background where a, a CEO of a company is pretty much a dictator. Right. So that's how that's what he empathizes with and he saves his harsh words for canada's prime minister and for the europeans right
0: this is i think uh what does it uh carl schmidt says you know the sovereign is the decider in in in this sense right so we've got this issue throughout is these these particular dictators or rulers who like george bush would say i'm the decider here and it doesn't matter what what the fallout is
1: yeah, our system's not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to have checks right. and balances. Now, of course, the executive authority, the president has uh, much more say on foreign policy for all these things. But even there, there's supposed to be a process that prevents irrational policymaking that that, that, that keeps right. a, a president in check, in check that allows a president to avail himself of all the expertise around him. But this president, by all accounts, refuses to avail himself of any expertise mm-hmm. and instead... Uh, uh, has uh, a, a scattergun, completely inchoate policy that uh, is really dangerous to national security, is giving, right now the, the winners with this pullout are, are Russia, Iran, Assad, uh, and it, it's compromised everything that we've had people risking their lives in Syria for, for the past several years it's undoing everything that they accomplished and we have special forces troops coming back saying for the first time they feel ashamed mm. uh, to, to to to be in the uniform and and, and to, to to be be having to uh, abandon uh, a loyal ally mm. it, it's it's unprecedented
0: one thing I think hasn't been clear at least in in mainstream news uh, to me is that is how you are framing or saying or speaking to the fact of the Kurds as a group in the region as being, um, as you said already, the sort of proponent of, of or the representative of good in the region.
1: Yeah, like I mean, they on some issues, they're way ahead of us. Uh, on the gender issue, they're, they're, they're much more progressive than, than the United States or, or even European states. Uh, they They had a rule that for every top leadership position – It had to be a man and a woman in order to assure gender parity. And uh, up to like 40% of their fighters, actual fighters, we're not talking support roles, fighters Mm -hmm. were, were, were women. And there was a, a real walking the walk of, of gender equality, mm-hmm. not just talking the talk. They were ahead of us on that. Yeah.
0: Were this primarily sex equality? or I mean, I, I know it's one of those fraught terms these days, but you're you're literally talking about um, biological females.
1: Yes. Uh, but they were also very progressive on LGBT mm-hmm. issues. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the party in Syria, people thought they were crazy. But the, the pro-Kurdish party in Turkey, I mean, uh, ran on a platform of equality for LGBTQ. BQT groups and and and, hmm. uh, and so forth, and in a fairly conservative Muslim country like Turkey, that was seen as crazy. But they said it's the right thing to do.
0: <laughs> wow, well, well, that is impressive, and uh, that's one of the things I meant to get to earlier. Was this uh, this distinction in, in how women were treated in this in in Kurdistan in the the, the region?
1: There, there, there's interesting. Uh, ramifications of that like i mean if the experiment had been allowed to survive and and isn't snuffed out and killed by this kind of treachery that we've seen from the white house there were interesting things happening i know here in missouri where i am the uh the democratic socialists like the, the the left wing of the democratic party the the local branch one of the people there uh, said, well, we should do a system of the co chair system where there's a man and a woman. Here's the Kurds doing it in Rojava, why can't we do it here? And so they instituted the same thing here in a local Democratic Party <laughs> uh, group. Like, I mean, <laughs> there were demonstration effects going on.
0: That's our show. Thanks to David Romano for joining us. He's political science professor at Missouri State University and author of the Kurdish Nationalist Movement, published by Cambridge University Press. Romano has made plain that even within complex situations, we must choose to act rightly. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, has proven, as he often does, a negative example. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show was produced by Bella Bravo. Jar Turner is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
2: rakat yek char ansare khura karin le dushman sai zuje karin yek char na behiz sare khura karin le tnyar sare zuje karin le vi kha ki le toven jiane jare hati chandin avard jiane yi Germ de be sardbé, de kele, de kele de pjectini, bruski davita van heltini, rona hidekirujalat heldini, erwakin kawalser hu pectini, nisht man perwarandu